What's up? It's Kaylee Cuoco. When it comes to travel, we all have a happy place. I just went to my happy place. I just went to Maui, and it was truly amazing. Priceline has always been about getting you to your happy place for a happy price with deals you really can't find anywhere else, like up to 60% off select hotels in Costa Rica or five-star hotels for two-star prices in Cabo. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey everyone, welcome to The Final Four is Not on the Schedule. I'm your host Eric, alongside with expert analyst Rod. Thanks for joining us on the best MSU basketball podcast featuring an in-depth recruiting, game matchup, and post-game analysis. We dive deep to give you the best tools to enjoy the Spartans and impress your friends and family. Hey everybody, it's Eric alongside Rod. We're here for our Kentucky pregame show. Number one Kentucky is facing off against Michigan State in the Champions Classic. Kentucky, the usual perennial gargantuan uh, heavyweight, is off to a 2-0 start. Number one in Ken Palm. They had two relatively easy wins over Howard and Duquesne at home. And, you know, they're definitely a legitimate contender for national champion. They were 26-8 last year, uh, and they were one of the first victims of the St. Peter's march through the tournament uh, where they lost in overtime in the first round. And as usual, they lost five of their top 10 players in minutes played last year from that team. But as usual, they also reloaded again this year. One of the surprising developments, I guess, a little bit is Oscar Shebway, who returned to the team and decided not to try out for the NBA. Maybe that's a little bit because his game is sort of like uh, Luca Garza, maybe uh, Hunter Dickinson. His game is more crafted for the college game than it is the NBA game. Uh, But this is obviously a big game for Michigan State. This is game two in the eight-game gauntlet we got going on in November and December. And so I guess, you know, with John Calipari, he's reloaded, he's reset. And this looks like one of his better teams that may be another chance to get his second national title with the Wildcats. Yeah, a couple things to touch on with that. We'll start with that last point first. I I do agree with that. I think that it's it's so early that we can't know for sure, but just my my feel right now is this is a Kentucky team that, in terms of what have been the standard weaknesses in recent years, I think this team could be a lot better. And so then it depends on can they also do the same things that his teams have historically done well, like defend, for example. And I think there's a good mm-hmm. chance that they will, but. What I'm talking about primarily is if you think about Kentucky over the last few years, oftentimes what has seemed to do them in has been a lack of reliable perimeter shooting. They've always had athletes, a lot of them. They've generally been very, very good defensively, and they've generally been very, very good on the interior. I mean, we can go up and down the list of you know Kentucky big men over the last decade that <laughs> have, have played in the NBA you know, after their, their one year at Kentucky. Um, and it's a lot of them and those things have been constants, but perimeter shooting has often been a problem. When I look at this team, I think it could actually be a strength. It has been in the first two games for whatever that's worth. But I think over the long haul, this is going to be one of the best shooting teams from the perimeter that he's had. And if they do get that and they stay solid in the areas where traditionally they've been strong defensively. Primarily I'm talking about, I I think they can win the title. I mean, we, you know, most years you say, well, Kentucky can win the title, but I really think this could be uh, right now. If, if I had a vote, I'd be with Ken Palm. I'd vote them. Number one. I understand why people are enamored of North Carolina. Um, And I think North Carolina is going to be very good, but I also remember North Carolina with a lot of these same guys struggled last year for most of the season, and then they got hot. So does that mean they're really the best team in the country now, or maybe are we overrating them a bit? I think time will tell, obviously, uh, you know, Gonzaga, we saw, uh, just a couple of days ago, ranked number two. I don't know that I would put them quite that high at this point, but to me, Kentucky at full strength, and that's, I guess, another thing, too, is 
are they going to stay healthy? They've already had some, some injury problems early on, including one, a big one, which might impact this game. Um, but I, right now, I think they they look to me on paper, the best team in the country. I really believe that because they've got, they've got everything they've got. Uh, and I'll turn to the second point I wanted to address that you mentioned to Shebway, um, as the returning national player of the year, when's the last time we said that? It, yeah. It's been a long time since I'd, I'd have to go back and look, but we don't have national players of the year returning to college anymore. That just doesn't happen. But what's interesting is it might actually happen more frequently now because of the advent of NIL and, and also changes in the professional game. As you mentioned, the reason he didn't go to the NFL is he wasn't going to be drafted that highly. And I don't think he will be no matter what he does this season, because I think he's unlikely to solve the, the issues that do not make him a particularly desirable candidate for the NBA. And you mentioned other guys, Hunter Dickinson, I think Drew Timmy, who we just got done seeing, also falls into that category. There are a lot of these guys who can be dominant, not just good, dominant collegiate players, and they just don't make sense at the NFL level. Or NFL, I'm sorry. I've got the Lions game Must on. be Sunday. My apologies. <laughs> the NBA level. Um, in his case, I think it's because um, there are questions about just how mobile he would be as a defender at that level, and he also doesn't shoot the ball well from the perimeter. So it's not that he can't earn a role in the NBA. It's just that, you know, he's not, he's not a, he's not a lottery pick. And the other part of that equation is if you're a national player of the year at Kentucky, the NIL money, and, and I've seen this alluded to, I haven't delved into it deeply enough to see whether it's factual, but it wouldn't surprise me if it is uh, the NIL money at a, at a program like that for a player of that stature might well easily outstrip what he would be making as say a late first or even second round pick. Sure. You know, so um, the equation has changed. He may, he's the first one I can recall in a long, long time to come back. He might not be the last one, I guess is the point because things <laughs> have really shifted both in terms of what the professional game demands and in terms of there actually being a financial incentive to stay in college. Uh, but yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a very good team. And so we're looking at it and this is in your opinion, obviously this would be the toughest game Michigan state's got on the schedule right now. I think so. Yeah. And you know, when you look at this is again, a great opportunity for Michigan state, a great highlight for a big 10 team. I imagine part of the champions classic, the allure of it is that you can have a consistently good big 10 school and that's Michigan state. They're not a powerhouse in the sense that they're not, uh, you know, perennial. They're not, I guess I just say they're not Duke, Kansas, or Kentucky. They are a half step behind those teams, right? I mean, they're a national name. Yeah. Historically. Yes. Because they don't Michigan state only, and I've got quotations around only has two <laughs> national titles. All these other schools, I believe have at least five, I think maybe more. Um, but, uh, you know, Kentucky, I believe, is second behind UCLA uh, all time. And, and Duke and Kansas are in that upper group as well. So if you're talking about history, that's true. But, it, but if we're talking about the last 25 years, it's a different equation. And, and the reason it's different is you can point at Tom Izzo's eight Final Fours, which I believe outstrips all of those programs. Yes, it I is. don't think any of them have reached the Final Four more often than Michigan State has. So, um, again, it depends on how you're defining terms, so to speak. Well, well, and I certainly think that, you know, if you're looking to put on one of these tournaments, or I guess it's not a tournament really, it's just a one game, but an it's event. rotating games, yeah, an event, yeah, that it makes sense to have the four largest conferences within basketball, you know, and, and if you're going to pick a team for the Big Ten, it's a no-brainer that it's Michigan State, that this is the most consistently Good team. Re realistically, who's the other program you would put in here? If if you're not solely, if you're if you're going to make it solely about historical achievement, well, UCLA 
would be a name you could throw in there. But I think if we're talking about the last 25 years, UCLA certainly had some great seasons, but there's been much more up and down than these other programs. You know, there have been periods of, of struggle for UCLA as well. Um, so you don't put and and nobody cares about the pac 10 as time has proven, unfortunately for those schools. Um, the one that obviously, if you were truly trying to get just the best four programs, both with a, with a blend of historical and current relevance, the obvious choice would be North Carolina. Sure. Yeah. But you're not going to have two ACC teams and no team from the Big Ten. And it also helps that Mark Hollis, in conjunction with ESPN, invented this event. So there's that, too. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, if this this had occurred in the 80s and 90s, it would have been Indiana. And now it's uh, Michigan State. Absolutely. And that's the right – that's exactly the right comparison. Whenever I'm I'm talking with somebody younger who – doesn't understand why anybody views Indiana as, you know, royalty, so to speak in college basketball. And I get that. If you've only been paying attention for the last 20, 25 years, you'd say, well, they're running the bill. Okay. Okay. To good program. Right. But yeah, for, for about a 25 year period, I'd say 1970 to 1995, roughly they were what Michigan state has been in the last 25 years. Yeah, yep. they they didn't win it every year, but they were the first team that came to mind when you were talking about basketball in the Midwest. Sure. Yeah. Well, and of course, that's, you know, UCLA is a Big Ten team, too. That's another reason you wouldn't have them in there. Right. <laughs> uh, well, why don't we get into the starters for Kentucky and we'll start with Severe Wheeler. He's a five nine senior. He missed the opener, but came off the bench against Duquesne, played 27 minutes. So uh, he'll be in the starting lineup for this game, probably. He scored 11 points, had 11 assists to just two turnovers. And he's coming off a season in which he averaged a little over 10 points a game on 44, 31, and 78 shooting. And a 6.9 assists per game average while uh, better than 2-1 to one tur- assist to turnover average. Yeah, he's look, he's really good. Um, you might say among pure point guards, he might be as good as anybody. Um. The one weakness is jump shooting. You mentioned the three-point number is not great from last year. If he could improve that, um, there's just there's no real limit to uh, to what he's uh, what he's capable of uh, of doing this year. But as is, you're talking about a very good defensive player, and you're talking about a guy who can really orchestrate an offense. And you know, last year I think Kentucky had some problems for a while trying to sort out their guard mix. Um, you know, they had Ty Ty Washington who went into the NBA. Now they had um, uh, another guy also who was in the mix and it took them a while to really just land on, Hey, just give the ball to Wheeler, you know, let him be the guy. And, and it ended, and he was always playing, but I mean, definitively say, this is our guy. And when they made that decision, I think they got a lot better offensively. Yeah, he's just he's he's good. And, you know, to come off an injury and then your first time out 11 assists, that's <laughs> that's pretty impressive, no matter who you're playing against. So he's going to be a problem. What is the effect of his size? I mean, he's five nine, so he's definitely undersized. I mean, even even like uh, other D1 schools, he'd be pretty small. But for a power five school, that's really small. I think um, he's proven to be able to produce despite that. And, you know, he's done it his whole career in the sec. He started his career out at Georgia. And I believe I didn't go back and look at it, but he must've been on that Georgia team that almost came back from a huge deficit against MSU in uh, Maui in Cash's senior year. If you remember that, that was the Anthony Edwards game where he just went crazy uh, in the second half and almost brought them back. Um, I think Wheeler must have been on that team. But anyway, so his whole career has been at the high major level in the SEC. So you produce, that's it. I mean, you know, you've answered the questions. I, you know, it could be that some of his perimeter shooting woes might be a result of that. And, you know, you have a, you have more difficulty getting a clean look over length. You know, I don't know. I'm, I'm just speculating, but, um, yeah, he, he has not 
proven over his career to have that be any kind of real limiter. One thing that is interesting, though, and I guess is worth mentioning in, in that regard, um, it depends on matchups. I would think they will cross matchup. And so they would probably have him guarding Tyson Walker, even though sure. A.J. Hogard is the point guard. But if MSU can get Hogard against him, that's something we could see a repeat of what we've seen already this year a little bit from A.J., where he tries to go to work in the post. And conceivably, even Tyson could work on in the post, although I don't think that's really his game. We've never really seen that from him. Uh, but with A.J., we have. So if they can get that, Michigan State can – can force switches or just somehow get that matchup, that might be something to pay attention to. Well, then go on to C.J. Frederick. This is a, one of the players who made my wife very sad. He was a former Iowa Hawkeye, was a really good shooter, maybe a maybe a slightly minus defender, uh, as most of the Hawkeyes are. Uh, but he transferred back to K- Kentucky, and then I think he got injured in the summer or the offseason before the season started. Yep. And he was out for the year. So he's back. He's playing now. He's averaging 17 points a game in two games on 61, 50, and 86 shooting, hitting six to 12 threes. And so, I mean, that's his strength, and that's where he is dangerous. And that's what I was certainly missed when he left. Yeah, missed all last season. He's from Kentucky. I believe he's from the Cincinnati area, I think, if I remember correctly. But but the Kentucky side. Um, so this was a return home. And I'm sure it must have stung Iowa. Uh, to lose him, you know, interestingly enough, Michigan state fan, a lot of our, our listeners probably don't have a lot of major memories of CJ Frederick, because I'd have to go back and look, but it seemed like he was always hurt when Iowa played Michigan state. He got hurt that year and he was out a few games. I think you're right. I think he missed one of the Michigan state. I don't know if he played him once or twice, but I think he missed one of the games and was maybe a little limited in the other, the other matchup, but he was really instrumental to them having a successful season with Garza. And um, yeah, so I mean, he was, he was important. If, if you're only really paying attention to Michigan State games closely, you probably don't have a lot of memories of CJ Frederick because, again, I don't think he saw the floor frequently. I'm sure he played Michigan State, but, it, but he definitely missed some games. I want to say at least two um, over his time there because I don't think he played in either game, as I remember, during uh, the COVID year. But in any event, I felt when he was in the Big Ten that that, that season, especially that we're talking about, the last season he was at Iowa uh, in 2020, 21, he was the best perimeter shooter in the league. And it wasn't just his percentage, but it was the quickness of release that he's got. Um, that is a kid who you cannot give any room to. I mean, if there's any window at all, he's getting the shot off. And obviously we see he shoots it with incredible accuracy too. Um, But I think his release is a big part of why he's as, as, uh, as much of a weapon as he is. Now you mentioned defense. That's the thing I'm going to find most interesting about this because John Calipari, you know, it's, it's funny. A lot of, a lot of fans, I, I noticed, especially a lot of Michigan state fans, which is what I pay the most attention to seem to have this idea that John Calipari is, uh, just kind of, a um, uh, overrated as a coach because, well, you just recruit all that talent. You roll the balls out. That's it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, I don't think John Calipari is, is a great offensive coach. I don't think he's proven to be a great one. I think he's okay, but, um, but defensively he has always been incredible. He was, he made his bones. Actually, if people have long memories or they, or they, they're old, they may remember that, you know, he really got his start as an elite coach during his time at UMass, where he took them to a national title game. His UMass teams were incredible defensively. Okay. But that's one thing that's UMass and, you know, he had, a he had a lot of veterans on those teams. The fact that he has had great defensive teams at Kentucky pretty much year in year out with the roster turnover he has from year to year is a testament to the fact that he's not a roll out the balls guy. This guy knows how yeah. to coach. Certainly at that end, he is great And to get that kind of buy-in and that execution from kids every single year that impresses me. 
that makes me uh, or before I go, just that reminds me of you know the COVID year that this when Kentucky missed the tournament, and I feel like that year we saw Michigan State had a lot of trouble, North Carolina had trouble, and and Duke, right? Maybe it's Duke. Uh, I think that especially when you have teams that are turning over so much, like at Kentucky, you have to have that time before the season in order to good point. get things straight, right? And I think they are affected more than other teams because. It's although they have a cultural defense, it's probably you know when you again when you have so many starters who leave every year, it's hard to sort of maintain that consistency that you can get defensively, especially that connectedness yeah. which you need, and that they were hurt more by COVID than other other schools probably, and that's probably why they struggled so much that season. Hundred percent. So why am I talking about that now? Well, you were kind. And what you said about C.J. Frederick <laughs> for all the wonderful things I said about him as a shooter, which I absolutely believe. He was a terrible individual defender at Iowa, as most Iowa players are. He just, they don't care. As, be, as best as I can tell, <laughs> Fran, Fran McCaffrey doesn't care. If he cared or he saw it as a problem, he would go and do what John Beeline did eventually after years of getting his head beaten in at that end and, and go bring <laughs> someone in on his staff who can actually teach defense and install a concept that can work. Um, but CJ Frederick was terrible. So I think there's going to be a hell of a test and I'm fascinated to see how CJ Frederick functions within Kentucky's thing, because John Calipari demands that you check. And if he's the same guy he was at Iowa, is there going to come a point, no matter how well he shoots it, where it starts becoming an issue? I'm, I'm, I'm not suggesting I believe that's what's going to happen, but I, I am fascinated to see if he can at least make the leap to being functional at that end. And if he can, that would be another feather in Calipari's cap as a defensive coach, in my opinion, because I've seen this guy be off. We'll move on to Chris Livingston. He's from Akron, a 6'6", 220-pound wing, considered one of the best prospects since that town, since some guy named LeBron James. He's American McDonald's All-American. He averaged... Uh, He's averaging seven points a game on 46% for the floor and 50% from three. Again, going to your point where maybe they have some more shooting that they've not had in the past. Yeah, that that's the thing that I think impresses me about what they've got right now. They're, and, and a couple of their freshmen in the rotation fit this mold where they've got that standard issue Kentucky you know, physical presence and athleticism, the high-end stuff that leads you to be an NBA prospect and to be highly rated in, in the recruiting rankings and all of that. But unlike a lot of the other guys they've had recently, this group seems to have a bit more reliability in terms of skills. Livingston's a very impressive guy physically. I mean, uh, 6'6", 220, he's put together and he's a good athlete. And obviously he's shown in the early going, at least that he may, he may be a very capable shooter at this level too. Um, he was a kid that, you know, to his credit, I think he's managed to deal with it pretty well because he happens to also be from Akron and because he was very physically advanced at a young age. I mean, he was not built too terribly differently three years ago, from what I recall. Um, <laughs> the LeBron comparisons, of course, are always going to come. And nobody ever quite said he's the next LeBron, but there's a lot of that kind of hangover you know the albatross right oh, sure. neck and he's yeah and he seems to have handled it very well and again is off to a, a very nice start at kentucky and it's this kind of a note perfect you know guy at the three for what that calipari wants to do yeah it's interesting now we're we've gotten beyond i suppose the times when everyone's compared to the next michael jordan so now we're yeah nobody talks about the next michael anymore do they no it's now it's now, um, I think, I think Grant Hill might've been the last guy that got, got that kind of thing. Um, but now it's, you know, the next Durant, the next LeBron, you know, that type. Yeah, of thing. right. Exactly. Steph Curry, I'm sure will be one of theirs too, is some guys shooting. Uh, that one might take a while. So the next is uh, Jacob Toppin. He's a six, nine senior younger brother, of former Dayton star, Obi Toppin. He transferred in from Rhode Island a couple years ago and has averaged 6.2 points a game and three rebounds per game. Uh, this season, he's up. He's, his production uh, now as a starter is at 11.5 points a game and 9.5 rebounds a game against, you know, again, like we mentioned, some lesser competition. Yeah. Um, 
he's gradually over his time at Kentucky just continued to creep up in the rotation and now is a starter. And I think even when Toshibwe Tush- is back, I think he's likely to remain a starter because, um, you know, he gives them length at that side, at, at that position at the four, but is maybe a bit better athlete and also experienced, uh, as opposed to some of the other guys who conceivably, could play that like Lance Ware, who we'll talk about in a second. I, I would think Toppin holds on to his starting spot, even when Kentucky's at full strength. Um, he's the difference, primary difference between he and his brother. His brother had at Dayton and continues to have in the NBA a perimeter game. And Jacob really doesn't have that. He's never shown to be like a even a plus 30% shooter from mm-hmm. three. So that's a major difference between the two, but still. Very, very good college player, and he'll be a tough matchup at the four because of his length. Lance Ware. <clears throat> Excuse me. And finally, Lance Ware. Uh, as we're not mentioning Oscar Shebway because he's injured, and he is uh, questionable as far as whether he'll play and probably not starting. So we're going to say Lance Ware is going to start for Kentucky. 6'9", 235-pound junior, holding down the fort until Shebway can come back. Averaged uh, one and a half points a game and two rebounds a game last season. This year, he's up a little bit more with some more playing time at four points a game and three rebounds a game in 20 minutes per game. Yeah, you know, he he was a highly, almost all Kentucky recruits are very highly regarded player in, um, in high school. He hasn't panned out to the level they projected. Um, that said, he's in the, he's going to be, more solidly in the rotation than he's been in his first two years. He's starting right now. I've got him in the starting lineup because I think even if, if Tashebway plays, it would seem unlikely that he would start his first mm-hmm. game back. I, I just think that's unlikely. So I'm assuming Lance Ware maintains that starting spot, but you know, to this point in his career, now watch him go for 25 and 10, but to this point <laughs> in his career, he's kind of just, been a guy you know nothing spectacular um hasn't shown you know uh, great post skills or to be an elite defender and i'm not knocking that i mean he's a he's a nice piece to have in your rotation a guy's third year in the program kentucky doesn't always have that and when they do when they've got a few guys who fit that bill you know it tends to it tends to play well for them historically under calipari but um, not a superstar. So let's go to the reserves, Oscar Shebway. Uh, so we're assuming he's not starting. We're assuming he's going to play, but there is some caginess, I guess, whether he's going to play. I mean, I I'm guess not sure we're not certain. That. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so as we mentioned before, uh, National Player of the Year from last year, he averaged 17 and a half points and 15 rebounds <laughs> and a one and a half blocks a game, shooting 61% from the floor and 69% from the line. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the, if he plays... And if he, if he were to be at full strength, let's talk about what he is at full strength. He was national player of the year last year. And that was in large part down to that, that 15 rebounds a game. I mean, he (laughs) is relentless. What makes him so good as a college level player is that he is big, he is strong, and he has a high, high, high motor. He just doesn't quit. And you can rack up 15 rebounds a game. That says something about what you are as a player to me. That's about effort, energy, toughness, all of those things. You can't possibly, because he's, look, he's a big kid, but, you know, we're, we're not talking about Shaq. <laughs> you know, he doesn't, yeah. he doesn't go out there and in every game, he's just massively the largest human on the floor. There's a lot of games where he isn't the biggest guy. You know, if he was in the, if he was playing in the big 10, he wouldn't have been anything extraordinary in terms of his size. Right. Um, but those numbers don't lie. As I mentioned earlier, he's not a perimeter threat. Um, and he's not a dominant score. He was a good score, but not a, you know, 17 point plus points a game is a nice number, but it's not, you know, earth shattering. So that's what he is as a player when he's healthy. He had a knee surgery a few weeks ago, which Calipari described as, you know, a 15 minute procedure to clear some stuff up, but 
he didn't play in either of their exhibitions. He hasn't played in any of their, either of their first two games. And he's not been practicing. Now, I haven't heard if that changed, you know, yesterday or today, but I, there's a real doubt. I don't think this is all caginess. Uh-huh. I think they want to be very careful with him and not put him out there. And, you know, it's kind of similar to uh, what Calipari said is it's kind of roughly similar to what Michigan state was saying about Jade Nakin. So like, look, before he plays, he's got to be able to practice and be pain free. You know, right. you're, you're not going to, you're not going to run those risks. This isn't tournament time, you know? Right. And and so that's the way they're approaching it. Given that, you know, I, I think it's not necessarily a great bet to assume he plays. So mm-hmm. we'll see if he plays, I suspect it will not be the kind of minutes that they, they tended to play him last year. And you don't know about his effectiveness, but if he's, if he were to be healthy and, and rolling out there a hundred percent or somewhere close to it, he's a major problem, major problem because his activity level alone would pose a real challenge for Michigan state, not only in stopping him, but in avoiding foul trouble, which we saw in that Gonzaga game can be an issue. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, if, if you're Kentucky, it makes no sense to risk some, the, your season on a game in November. I mean, it doesn't, there's just no sense to it. Here's the other thing too. If you were Michigan state and Monty Sissoko couldn't play, well, that, you know, you look very, very different than without that option. Right. Right. You don't mm-hmm. have another. If you look at Kentucky's roster, there is a lot of size. Now, I'm not going to pretend that they've got anybody on his level, but they've got guys. We just talked about Lance Ware. He's in his third year in the program, right? Um, Toppin yep. at the power forward is 6'9. They've got other guys we're going to talk about who have size. So it's not as if Kentucky can't roll out a lineup that physically can compete with Michigan State without Tashebwe playing. They absolutely can. So that's another, I think that's another reason why they would be very cautious because it's not even like you're saying, well, we're going to, we're going to really take a hit the short term. Yeah. You don't have that great player, but physically you can, you can compete without him. Next we'll talk about Casey Wallace. He's six, four 190 pound freshman guard. He's probably a six man. The guy, first guy off the bench started the first two games uh, when Wheeler is out, but he's probably going to be more reserve. He's averaging 11.5 points a game on 59, 67, and 50 shooting with 6.5 assists and a 2-to-1 assist-to-turnover ratio. I mean, this is a, obviously a great great presence for Kentucky, and this, again, helps their shooting from the outside. It's a, it's a big deal. Um, the, the, one of the other reasons I really like this Kentucky team is it's not like they're rolling out 12 guys, but the depth that they have, some of these pieces – that they can turn to off their bench are really, really good. And yeah. this kid's an example of that. He's probably not going to be a starter and yet he's projected as a lottery pick. <laughs> so, I mean, he's must be he's, nice to be Kentucky. <laughs> yeah. He's a two way, a real force is a two way player. They, and again, this is one of the reasons why I like this team's potential because with him, you're talking about a guy that has a reputation as an outstanding defensive player individually. Well, okay, that's standard Kentucky stuff, but he's also reportedly a very good shooter and he's off to a good start, at least in the early going, right? So if those two things hold, well, then you're talking about a team that's set up a little differently than they've been in recent seasons. You know, um, he's not going to be the, I, I think, you know, Wheeler Wheeler played in the last game. He didn't start because he was coming off injury, but I expect Wheeler to start this one and and going forward. Um, and then you look at the rest of their team. They obviously seem set to start uh, Frederick, and um, I think Livingston probably makes the most sense as a starting three man. So there's not a spot for him to start, but he's still going to play a ton. Next would be six five senior transfer Antonio Reeves. He's a Redbird from Illinois State. He averaged 20 points a game last year on 47, 39, and 82 shooting in the Missouri Valley. 
And he's doing pretty well so far this year, also averaging 20 points a game on 52, 56, and 67 shooting. Yeah, one of the one of the main, main uh, highlight guys in the portal last year, and especially if you're talking about the category of moving up from the mid-major level to the high-major level, he would he would be at the top of that chart. Um, and he's shown up early, first two games, 20 points a night. He's just a shot maker. You know, they've, they've described him as just a born scorer, and that is, in fact, exactly what he has done thus far early in his Kentucky career. His, his career at Illinois State was a gradual progression. He went from being a single-digit guy as a freshman to, I think he was like a 12 or 13-point-a-night guy as a sophomore, and then last year he really exploded. Um, again, tremendous option to have coming off your bench, you know to bring in a guy who's capable of, you know, he, he didn't start either of these first two games and he's still averaging 20 points a night. I don't care (laughs) who you're playing against. That's, (laughs) that's getting it done offensively. He's not the, the difference between he and Livingston is that, you know, as we said, Livingston is really put together physically. Reeves is not, he's a much more, he's like six, five, one eighty or one ninety, much more conventional, you know, wing in, in that way. He's not as much of a physical presence, but he could score. Next would be Yugano Ogienso. He's a 6'11", 225-pound freshman, originally a top 25 recruit in the 23 class, but decided to reclassify and come to Lexington a year early. He's averaging 7.5 points a game on and 7 rebounds a game in just 19 minutes, along with 3.5 blocks. So this is, again, more of that size that you were talking about earlier. And, and he's the main – the way he's played early is the main reason why, if I were John Calipari, I would be um, – very much willing to be patient with bringing Tishabwe back because this kid has obviously, you know, your top 25 guy in the 23 class, you're highly regarded, right? But yeah. he has been so impressive. You know, they knew he had real potential defensively, but I think he's even outstripped some of that. You know, great rim protector, but they also think he should be outstanding in pick and roll. I mean, just exactly what you want as a five man in the modern game. He can do everything that they that they want, but um, he's rebounded well. He's shown some ability to provide a little bit of scoring punch. Um, if, if it were me, I would be very willing it, coming into this game to roll the dice and not if, if you have any hint of reservation about pushing your, your main man, because this guy, at least in the first two games and the exhibitions has shown that he, even though he reclassified and sometimes that doesn't always go well, but in this case, it seems to be, um, seems to be really, really, uh, he, this kid's a player <laughs> and, and he's ready. You suspect, I guess I haven't looked at Kentucky's schedule, but they're probably aside from another holiday tournament, they're probably not, uh, super tough gauntlet of games before they start the SEC matches. And so you probably could afford to let Tishabe recover. Yeah. Too. And Cal's interesting in that regard. You know, you can't say that he doesn't play any kind of a challenging schedule because he always competes in the champions classic. Um, you know, they'll, they'll usually play another couple games, but interestingly, they've tended to shy away from the holiday tournaments that most other major programs play in. He also had killed the longstanding Indiana series, you know, where they would play on each other's home campuses. Um, And uh, it's, yeah, it's really, it's, um, it's interesting. They don't, I I would never label him as um, a Jim Beheim where they don't leave (laughs) the state of New York until January. But right. um, he doesn't tend to push himself. They certainly have. He, he is not a scheduler with the philosophy of a Tom Izzo or a Mark Few. Um, he, they don't challenge themselves quite to that level. Um, I would say he's more he's more along the lines of Shashevsky, where they'll sure. play, you know, say three highlight non-conference games, you know, just enough. To, to feel like you get a reasonable test for yourself, but not too much that you're, you're running a real risk of putting a bunch of L's on the schedule or on the, on the record. 
I'm going to take everything I just said back because I was just I'm just now looking at their schedule. So after Michigan State, they play South Carolina State. Then they're at Gonzaga in Spokane. <laughs> then they play, and then they play Michigan in England. Okay. And that's then UCLA unusual. and Madison Square Gardens. So that's their point. Who do they play? Who do they play at Madison Square Garden? UCLA. Okay, that's another so, event. I think they're part of that. Yeah, isn't that the thing with North Carolina and Ohio State as well? I um, think you're right. Yeah. Yeah, that's CBS okay. Sports that, Classic. That's that's maybe you know one more than I would expect them to play normally. Um, but but even so, I think the point still stands. Compare that to what Michigan State's doing. Oh, yeah. There's, yeah. there's still well, a lot of room for him to be patient, especially yeah, if he's sure. getting production from young guys and he's not he's not having a feel like, uh, boy, I'm, I'm really, really uh, running the risk of taking some losses without my main guy. Right. I mean, this is a loaded team. I mean, we're we're. We got through all these players. There's still, uh, Damian Collins is a six nine sophomore. He averaged two and a half, or sorry, two point nine points a game and two rebounds a game. Sadly, his father just passed away recently, so he hasn't been with the team. But I guess he's rejoined, and he might come uh, in and play a little bit at the interior. They thought he might play in the Duquesne game, and then he didn't. Um, but as I understand it, his father's um, funeral was yesterday. It was a sudden death, and really a sad story. Um, I, I read some quotes from Calipari on it. Uh, Calipari went to, was going to go to Texas for the funeral yesterday, I believe. And then they were all going to come back to Lexington uh, today. Uh, so unclear whether he plays, but, um, you know, another 6'9 guy. And finally, Adu Thero. He's a 6'6 freshman wing, late bloomer. He committed to Kentucky this past spring. He played 13 minutes in a game. Scored four points and had five rebounds, uh, so it's hard to know whether he'll see the floor this game either. Yeah, it's you know I think right now as a freshman they didn't play him against Duquesne and and I saw Calipari quoted that he said he talked to him about it and just told him hey it's you know your job is to stay ready um, there are going to be opportunities at some point but when you look at this team and you look at the depth that they've got. Uh, in that perimeter group, I mean, you know, you're talking about a guy who's a projected lottery pick and a guy who scored 20 points a game last year at Illinois State and has already proven he can do the same thing at Kentucky coming off the bench. So yeah. there's just not a lot of opportunity unless injuries were to hit. I think that's the truth for him. Sure. Injuries, obviously foul trouble would be the other thing, but He's pretty deep in the depth chart at this point. He's he's the sixth. He's the sixth guy in what I would say is looks like a five man perimeter rotation. Uh, so let's talk about the keys of the game. Number one, which is going to be a perennial thing, I think, for Michigan State this season, but is going to be at the top of the list this game is the defensive glass. And this is a fantastic offensive rebounding team, obviously. Which is Shebray playing? He they're even better, but they're you know this is going to be something we have to we have to. Uh, con- contain them let's let's change that just a bit i think the potential for it to be a very very good offensive rebounding team is there um their first two games they haven't they haven't done they haven't been a wrecking ball but when i look at this team i look at the personnel i look at the size the physicality and the athleticism um it it would seem that there is real potential for them to be a problem. Definitely if Shebway is on the floor, but even without him. And look, the, the reality is for Michigan State, we have seen two games of the regular season. I didn't think they were great against Northern Arizona in the second half. And I didn't think they were very good at all in the second half of the Gonzaga game. And it caught the Gonzaga game, I think, as much as and look, you can point to lots of things. Michigan State only scored 25 points in the second half. They couldn't get shots to fall. Um, that was a factor, certainly. Uh, Drew Timmy really turned it on in the second. That was a factor. But let's also not pretend that really, I think when push came to shove, the most important thing in that second half, especially down the stretch, 
is Michigan State could not close out defensive possessions because they couldn't keep Timmy in particular off the offensive boards. And it led to several second chance scores. That's a problem. And Michigan State's got to find a way to solve that. And this is another game where I think they're going to be tested. If Kentucky misses a shot, you have to end the possession. You have to. You can't let this team get second and third chances at scoring. If you do, you're going to take a hit. You're going to suffer and you're probably going to lose. You know, right. Um, Now, what does Michigan State do about that? How do they solve that problem? Again, I'm going to keep harping on something we've talked about a ton here. To me, it has to come from the wing group. I've been reasonably impressed with Michigan State's interior guys in terms of how they've rebounded. I think Mati Sissoko has been really good. Um, Hauser didn't do much of anything against Gonzaga, but he was very good against Northern Arizona. And we've seen enough of Joey that if he's playing, I think he's a productive defensive rebounder. And I think Jackson Kohler, for whatever defensive problems he's had, has done a decent job on the boards thus far, enough to give you some faith that he can contribute there. To me, it's that wing group. And, and I'm going to hit on a tangential point. I've seen a lot of talk in the Michigan State fan base about the use of Malik Hall at the three. And a lot of the talk is negative because people see that he might not be the epitome of what we normally see at that position from MSU in terms of running the lane in transition. There are concerns about him as an individual defender. I got to say, I don't think, I don't think he struggled much against Gonzaga in that regard. But maybe I missed yeah. something. Uh, but anyway, those kind of those kind of considerations, and I, I'm not going to deny that those things exist. But 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 but, he is averaging seven rebounds a game. He's had exactly seven in each of the first two games playing most of his minutes at the three. He, he played so he played a little more at the four against Gonzaga in that second half out of necessity, but um, the vast majority of his minutes have come at the three in these first two games. I want you to imagine what Michigan state's defensive rebounding would have looked like if they hadn't had Malik call at the three, how much worse would uh, what's already a problem area have been if they didn't have that. Um, so to me, the only, the only way you can make that change and start thinking about shifting him back to more of sharing the four with Hauser is if you see other guys, specifically guys like Pierre Brooks and Jade Nakins really stepping up as rebounders, this would be a great opportunity for those guys to do exactly that. Michigan State's yeah, got to get more out of those guys on the boards. It's just bottom line. It, you know, in this game, even if Tashebway plays, yeah, he worries me, of course, because he's a wrecking ball on the glass. But you know what really worries me? What really worries me is a guy like Chris Livingston grabbing four offensive rebounds. That's what really worries me. Yeah, and I mean, we've seen Brooks, who I think is going to be, uh, he's a guy who goes after the ball. I think he's going to be a good positive in the rebounding which I don't know that I knew for sure going into the season, but I think he's going to be good. And Aikens, I think we know can be good, but he's just got to get kind of back into the flow. And I still feel like he's a couple games away. Yeah. I don't blame Jaden Aikens. Jaden Aikens is still trying to get back in the flow. Absolutely. But he's still got to do it. And, and even if he does it, he's not enough. They need other guys. Uh, Pierre Brooks is the obvious one because he physically has the tools to do it. And I think he shows you flashes. He's had rebounds in each of these first, I'll, I'll even count the Grand Valley game, uh, the first three games. He's yeah. had flashes where you say, boy, that's that's what I know he can do, but he hasn't done it consistently enough yet. And, and that's the thing that's a concern. We just went through, I'll give him a pass for his freshman year because he wasn't counted on that much. We've just gone through three years of Gabe Brown where he would have moments frequently, mm-hmm. but no yeah. consistency. Well, let's go to the number two key to the game. 
strong with the ball. Kentucky's perimeter group is pretty good, and you know, uh, is our Hogard and Walker and Aikens to some degree are they going to be able to to avoid the turnovers? Because although Hogard's been good this so far, he has had the tendency to be a little loose with the ball, at least at, in the Gonzaga game, and then even in Northern Arizona. Some of this is turnover related, but it's even a broader issue than that. Um, mm-hmm. We talked about Gonzaga's guards as a relative weakness for them. And I think that game actually bore it out. Now they got better in the second half. I'll give them credit for that, but you did see Michigan state get the better of their guards. And I think that was not just a skill thing. That was a physical thing. Yeah. I don't know that I believe that's the case in this game. Kentucky's got some guys. I mean, we just got done talking about it. You're bringing a, you're bringing a lottery pick off your bench. Um, they've got some guys now, CJ Frederick. Okay. Maybe not, but the rest of that group, I think could be very, very good defensively. And so for Michigan state being strong with the ball, isn't just about avoiding turnovers. It's also about being strong enough to get yourself in the lane and finish, you know, finish plays. Um, that's going to be very, very important. We've already seen that. I think, I think it's fair to say this Michigan state team has more potential in terms of going off the dribble than any Michigan state team for a long, long time, a long time. Uh, and one of the good parts, again, that Gonzaga game. Yeah. You could talk about the officiating and, and yeah, it was, it wasn't always great. But MSU got itself to the line a bunch. And a lot of that was because of the activity of their guards. So that's all got to remain intact in this game because I think they are facing a stiffer challenge in that backcourt than what Gonzaga gave them. Yeah. And I think, and I think kind of uh, tying into the next key, which is the deep ball, it's hard to imagine, you know, Michigan State being successful about being successful at the three. Uh, but, you know, maybe a little bit less penetrating will happen in this game just because you'd be able to shoot a lot better than you were on that aircraft carrier. Well, that, that's true. There's going to be, I mean, Michigan State attempted, I think, 13 threes. That would be a very low number, typically. But it was the right thing to do. I mean, I mentioned yeah. that. There was some criticism of Tyson Walker not taking more threes. That was the smart. I was playing it smart under those conditions. But inside, where most games are played, um, you're not going to have that same <laughs> concern. So, yeah, I, I, to get back to the original point here, look, the, the reality is that for this Michigan State team to be the best version of itself it can be, I think it's got to be a good three-point shooting team. We, you know, Izzo believes he's got that. I think we believe that. They have to actually shoot that way. The Gonzaga game, you can write off in terms of that aspect of things because – the conditions were just not going to lend themselves to that, you know, ever being a bit. And it wasn't, wasn't a big part of the game for Gonzaga either. Who's also a good shooting team. So that tells you it was the conditions. Um, this one, it's just hard for me to imagine beating a Kentucky without Michigan state, having a productive game from three. Right. It's just hard to see that. So, you know, that means you want to see Tyson, being more aggressive again. Uh, you want to see guys like Jay Makins and Pierre Brooks uh, and Joey Hauser and Malik Hall all kind of dialed in as uh, as shooters, you know? It needs to be multiple guys. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of moves to transition game, which was very good in Gonzaga, I thought, for most of the game until the end. And, uh, and then it has not been quite as good the previous two games. And also to your the first key, which defensive rebounding and gl- holding the glass and cleanly getting the rebounds to start the transition. Uh, this is going to be obviously a key to this game. And, you know, whether Kentucky, you know, we play them every couple of years, so I feel they shouldn't be that surprised by seeing things. But I guess if you play someone every three years, the likelihood of anyone in Kentucky having played against Michigan State is pretty rare. I mean, there are probably a couple of players you've actually seen it. Their players don't. I mean, Frederick has seen it. I Again, if I had confirmed, I'm pretty sure Wheeler saw it. Uh, in Maui, I'm pretty sure he played in that game for Georgia. 
but other than those guys, no, they don't have any institutional memory of it. Um, the difference is, again, Calipari has always proven to be a very good defensive coach. So I would be a little bit surprised to see Kentucky get blitzed the way that Gonzaga did in the early going of that game. But you never know. And it would be very helpful if Michigan State could get some transition scores because the more of those you get, the less frequently you're going against a set defense. And I think this Kentucky team has a chance to be pretty damn good as a half-court defensive group. And finally, the last key would be toughness. And this is something that I think Michigan State showed a lot of, especially coming out that, that carrier game against Gonzaga. They were they played a lot of grit and a lot of toughness. And you know, can they carry that over and play with that same physicality and intensity against Kentucky? Yeah, and, and I think Kentucky poses um, a little more of a physical challenge than Gonzaga, just in terms of physicality. I thought Gonzaga, you know, say what you want, and I know – he irritated a lot of people and a lot of people were irritated with <laughs> calls in that game late, but I watched the post game interview with drew Timmy. And I thought one, he was extremely complimentary in Michigan state, which is not too surprising. MSU recruited him hard and you may have seen Tom Izzo had a long conversation with him in the post game handshake, which, um, I imagine was all complimentary, but, um, one of the things he said, which I think was absolutely true, is he felt Michigan State came out and really punched them in the mouth in the first half, and that in the second half, they responded. And I think that was true. I think Gonzaga was much tougher physically and much more willing to meet Michigan State's force with force of its own in the second half. And that was part of you know one piece of the story of how they got back in the game and ended up winning it. I think Kentucky's guys are bigger and I don't just mean taller. I mean, stronger, more solid physically than Gonzaga. And I think the culture of their program is a little more oriented to, you know, closer to Michigan state where you look to physically impose your will on the opponent at times, right? That's not really yeah. been Gonzaga's thing. It is much more Kentucky's thing. And so I think they're, you know, when I, when I look at that roster, I just, again, to or no to it's just guy after guy who's put together, you know, and I just think this is going to be a case where Michigan state needs to come with that same type of energy and fight that they showed against Gonzaga, because if they don't, they may face a real problem in staying in this one. Um, but if they do, if we see that same type of activity level and energy and toughness and fight, they got a chance. I really do. I think they've got a chance to compete in this one and maybe even steal a big win. Yeah, I mean, this is obviously a meat grinder you're going to. This is the number one team in the country. And Ken Palm, clearly so. I mean, even without Shebway, they're going to be a really, a really a tough out. And uh, there's Kentucky is an eight-point favorite on Ken Palm. Uh, there's no uh, lines in Vegas yet, which I think is pretty reasonable. This is certainly the kind of game that you could see Michigan State, if they don't come out that intensity like you just mentioned, they could find themselves down 12 real quick. And then yeah. you're just always playing uphill and never really having a chance this game. It could just turn into a laugher. Uh, so they've got to be, they've got to come out ready right from the tip right. and hopefully get some stuff going. Because again, you could, this is the kind of games where you could see, like when we play North Carolina sometimes, where you just give up two, three you have turnovers for dunks on the other end. And suddenly it's just, it, the game's almost like out of reach and you just feel the team just looks physically like incapable of competing. I go back to that game in the champions classic in 2016 where Michigan state played Kentucky and it was, you know, miles and Cassius and Nick and Josh was their freshman year and Kentucky had a bunch of freshmen too, but just physically Michigan state got kind of overwhelmed in that game and it got out of hand real quick. That's what you don't want to see. I don't, I, I would be surprised by that kind of outcome here in part because this is a much more mature Michigan state team. Right. And, you know, and, and I'm also encouraged by, you know, what you saw out of a guy like Mati Sissoko. That's a big, big difference maker with this team. And I know he fouled out of that game, but he also played 25 minutes. So Michigan state got production out of him. 
even though he ended up in foul trouble. I think that a guy like him changes the equation a little bit. You also need your A.J. Hogarth, your Malik Halls, Pierre Brooks, Jay Makins. You need these guys to step up to the moment and show that kind of Tyson Walker, show that kind of toughness physically and mentally, because I think Kentucky is going to pose an athletic and physical challenge that's different than it's different than what they saw against Gonzaga. And it's different than what they'll see probably from just about anybody else the rest of the year. Well, I guess we'll see who plays and, uh, and how things turn out on this on Tuesday. I guess, you know, final thoughts, anything else to add about the game? You know, it's a, I'm going to say similar things to what I said about Gonzaga. It's another challenge. It's another opportunity. It's another measuring stick. I, I'm not going to get caught up with the, the scoreboard at the end of it. If Michigan state plays well, that's more what I'm concerned about. I came out of the Gonzaga game. Yeah. You, you want the win and you're, you know, you're irritated that when you played that well at times and you were right there and had a chance that you didn't get it done, that, that's all valid, but it's also far outweighed in my opinion, by the positive signs that came out of that game. So this is another similar kind of scenario. In my opinion, if Michigan state loses, but they really compete, they show out well, you know, I could see a scenario where you come away from this. Michigan state does a really good job of the defensive boards. and maybe starts to alleviate some of those concerns, but Kentucky gets hot from three and they end up winning a close game. Am I going to be really, really bothered by that? Probably not. You know, I, I think I got a pretty, I think we've got a pretty good idea of what needs to happen for this Michigan state team to be the best version of itself. It can be. And it's conceivable that they can do things that suggest that they're on the path to getting to that place and still lose a game like this. Sure. Right. So the analysis I think has to be different. It really has to be more about what are we doing? What are we showing? Um, And is there reason for optimism that an improvement curve in the areas that it's really needed is, is likely to happen? And if that's the case, if, if there are signs of those things, I'll take whatever the final scoreboard says. Sure. Michigan State right now is the only team in the Big Ten with a loss. <laughs> They're the only team in the Big Ten who's played anyone. Uh, the only team uh, who played then, a team with a pulse, yeah. Yeah, right. Exactly, yeah. Uh, and and I think to your point, we were talking about the game and the carrier. Izzo was really mad after that game because it was a game that he thought he could win. But to your point, it, it is – he definitely thinks this is a special team that they can really uh, do some things. And so he's going to, he's going to want to see that incremental improvement. He's going to want to see that they can maintain that same intensity. They had the last game. I'm sure that'll be his main concern is can they, is that a flash in the pan or is this something that this, you can count on this team bringing every night? Right. And if, and if those things are there, if you see that compete level, you see that toughness, then, you know, other things in a one game scenario in November can happen that might lead you to losing a game, even against a good opponent, even when you did those things well, that we're talking about. Um, so be it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Right. Well, looking forward to the game. Uh, I'm sure everyone else is too. I actually just got done curling. I don't Have you ever gone curling before Rod? I have, I have not uh, I've played shuffleboard. Yeah, which well. gets as close. I used to, my grandparents lived in a retirement village in New Jersey when I was a kid. And when we go out there, this is how rough it was to be like a 10 year old kid in a retirement village <laughs> in South Jersey. Um, the highlight of my day was getting to go to the shuffleboard court in the evening. Um, so that's as close as I've come. Yeah. The horseshoe pit or something would be the other thing that so the old folks homes, but yeah, I went curling yesterday. I'm sore in places. I did not think I could be sore. It, you know, I watched it in the Olympics a bunch, and it looks like not a hard game, but it is really hard. Like oh, pushing with off the on the sweeping ice and, and everything. I could see it. Well, the the sweeping is actually pretty easy. I'm pretty good with a. I was pretty good sweeping. I got to say, but uh, throwing the rock straight and then to curl it, and then to launch, and interestingly, 
you have to put a piece of Teflon underneath one of your one of your feet because I did, of course don't have curling shoes because it was just a uh-huh. sort of a, a, a game where you just they show you how to do it and not surprisingly Teflon is really slippery in the ice so <laughs> your foot's going all over the place trying to launch off those things so I'm gonna re- I'll be recovered by the time for the game I look <laughs> forward to everyone joining us again to see when we discuss what happens and hopefully uh, hopefully a W or at least at the minimum. A really good showing by our team with some signs of progress uh, from the guards and the interior. So until next time, the final four is on the schedule. Go green. At Granger, we're for the ones who pay attention to every little detail. The ones who fuss, tinker, and sweat the small stuff. Because you know the tiniest thing can make the biggest difference when it comes to keeping business moving. We get it. We're the same way, offering access to product experts to help you quickly and easily find what you need. So whatever your industry, you know you're always getting professional-grade products. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.